Turn in your Bible to John. Uh, we're going to be reading from the first chapter. And what we're going to be reading is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but perhaps not what you have heard read during the Christmas season before, because normally when you read in the Gospels, you, you read the book of Matthew or even more commonly, the book of Luke, where the, you read the, the Christmas story. Uh, uh, but we're going to be reading from the first chapter of John. But the, the first chapter of John is, in fact, the theological statement of the mystery which we see dramatically portrayed in the nativity. Every time you see a nativity scene when you're driving down the road, or uh, every time you see one of those, this chapter is what you're looking at. And, and as I read it this morning, I want you to imagine the shepherds uh, arriving and the, and the magi arriving. And I want you to imagine the angels singing to the shepherds that night. Uh, I want you to have that parading before your mind as we read the text. This scene is the dramatic revelation of this theological statement uh, of the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Here it is in, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and without Him nothing was created that was created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came as a witness in order to testify concerning the light that all men through him might believe. He was not this light, but was sent in order to testify concerning the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen with our own eyes his glory, and it was the glory revealed of God the Father Almighty, through Him, whom and by whom everything that has been made was made. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that in the next few moments that your Holy Spirit will witness with our spirits. God, I'm praying for, for every heart, every listener, whether they're in this room or they're watching on the live stream, I'm, I'm asking God that, that deep within their inner man, there would be such a witness of your spirit that, that hope would arise, that, that faith would come forth. Lord, Lord, I'm not asking you to make me clever. I'm not asking you for perfect words today. I'm asking you, God, that you would speak to us deep within. I'm asking that you would commune deep within the inner man of every listener. And I'm asking, God, that when we leave here today, every one of us would be able to say, I have heard from God, and I will never be the same. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Some years ago, a, uh, I heard a fascinating and a uh, provocative interview uh, with, on television with a, with a man who worked in the garbage dump. Maybe you saw this news report a few years ago. Uh, well, by now, you know, now I'm getting to the age now where a few years ago might be many years ago. So I don't remember how long ago it was. It just sometime in the past. That's how it works now at my age. This happened in the past sometime. But anyway, uh, th this man that was interviewed, he had found a diamond ring that was worth nearly a quarter of a million dollars. And, but he found it in the, in, amongst junk. 
uh, this, uh, during the interview, the man was just, of course, he was just gurgling with joy and excitement. But the man had spent many, many years working at a landfill. And, and suddenly, uh, working at a landfill, he had more disposable income than he ever dreamed he would, that he would ever, ever have in his whole life. And his life just changed in just a single moment. And he, he was just thrilled. But the interesting thing, though, was what he said during the interview. Because the interviewer asked the man, they asked him, how did you manage to pick this little ring out of all those mountains of garbage? Now, now listen, if I've ever heard wisdom, this is it. Because this man answered by saying this. He said, through the years, I began to realize that my life was so surrounded by garbage that if I only saw the garbage, I would be swamped by it. He said, so I began to train my eye to not see the garbage so that I could see the things in it that were valuable. He said, it wasn't really a miracle that I saw the diamond ring. It was a miracle that somebody lost it or threw it away because I knew all these years that if anything valuable ever came in front of me, I would see it because I couldn't even see the garbage. And I believe with all my heart that that this is the reason that some men find the Lord and and others don't. Some men have so saturated their vision, their their thoughts, their insights, their understanding of the world with garbage that they can't see the diamond. However, there are others that have so trained their eye to see that which is precious, precious so that despite the mountains of garbage, they see only the diamonds. This selective vision, this... This learning to see with the eyes of hope and faith is far more than just the gullible idiocy that you see in fantasy stories at Christmas time. You know, Christmas is not about the magic of life or the magic of Christmas. Christmas is not about the fanciful little stories like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or the Grinch who stole Christmas. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I will say that there has to be a balance in the middle of our view of Christmas. Because, I mean, I heard about a large church in the U.S. where a pastor decided that God had revealed to him that he and his church, that they were not to celebrate Christmas at all anymore. In fact, he actually forbade his people to celebrate Christmas. They were not to have trees in their homes. They were not to exchange seasonal gifts or send Christmas cards or anything like that. He said that the modern practices of celebrating Christmas came from an ancient pagan winter festival. So he decided that they were not going to celebrate Christmas at all because he said, because we don't know the exact date of Jesus's birth. Now there are several things that jump out to me at me when I heard that story. The first of all, the first thing is I marvel at any pastor that has the kind of control over his congregation to order them not to celebrate Christmas. I mean, I just can't even imagine my my mailbox if I made such a command uh, here at Restoration Life Church. The the second thing is, uh, where in the world does he get off commanding anybody to do anything? You know, the truth is, I am the head of my household only because I have permission to be. You know, it's true. Um, The reason I love men's conventions is because we, we get together and, as men and we look at each other right in the eye and we say, I am the head of my household. And then the other guy says, yeah, me too, me too. And then we act like we believe that. <laughs> we do. Just, just, you have to ask Chuck one time about the dirty joke that one of his friends played on him when, uh, when he was uh, asked about if he was ahead of, ahead of his household. He's got a good story about that. 
But, I mean, just imagine a pastor of such authority that he commands his people not to celebrate Christmas. But, but here's the, the main thing that I, that I see in this. What really jumps out to me about this story is that he's overcorrecting. That's an adolescent overcorrection for a, for a minor error. Uh, l- listen, you, you understand, and I understand, that there's absolutely, absolutely no biblical or historical, historical evidence of any kind that, that Jesus was born on a snowy evening on December the 25th over 2,000 years ago. We don't know the day of the year. We don't have any indication what time of year it happened. There, there are some historical indications that this may be the, the time of year. We, we just don't really know. But what we do know, we don't know the exact date he was born, but what we do know is that he was born. We know that he was born. What we do know is that, that this is an occasion for great joy. We, we do know that he is God's great gift to, uh, to humanity. What we do know is that even at his birth, humanity sensed that it was appropriate to give gifts and they, they came from far uh, bearing fr- gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What we do know is that the angel said to the shepherds, we bring you glad tidings of great joy. Well, you know, listen, I'm not just going to try about to try to steal that from people. I don't want to be a Grinch in the pulpit. I'm not going to try to steal Christmas stories and, uh, and from people and the joy of celebrating, of, of getting up on Christmas morning and giving out gifts. I'm not going to try to steal any of that kind of thing from people. But what I, what I am going to say is this. Concentrate on the mystery of Christmas, not the magic. Concentrate on the mystery of Christmas not the magic. Get, get caught up in the joy of it, but know what the real joy of Christmas is. Look with trained eyes to see beyond the momentary scope of this immediate Christmas celebration. Look with trained eyes to see the diamond among the junk because there's a lot of junk in the way our nation celebrates Christmas. Learn to look to see the diamond in the, among the junk. These are the eyes of Adam as he held a baby in his arms following the, his dramatic and devastating expulsion from the Garden of Eden with the door having been closed behind him. Adam holding that first child in his arms said, said, this baby makes me believe that there is another one to come. This baby is this baby, but this baby speaks of the seed of the woman who will come. And then after the death of one of his sons, tragically murdered by another one of his sons, one son has been exiled by the hand of God and the other one has been murdered. Surely at that moment, Adam must have been tempted to say, it's over. It's over with. This is the end of the human race. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We're bound in sin. The curse that I introduced into the bloodstream of my own children is going to destroy all of humanity. And yet there was another another baby born. And as Adam held that baby, Seth, in his arms, that third son, I believe that his eyes could see the diamond among all the murderous junk of humanity. He said, this baby is this baby. This is Seth. But this baby is like another baby yet to come. This baby also speaks of the coming of the seed of woman that will, of, that will crush the serpent's head. I believe that as Noah stepped from, from the ark to, onto dry land and looked behind him, he said, this world has been destroyed. The water, the flood, the judgment, the wrath of God has been poured out. But as he stepped out his foot out onto dry ground and, and he turned and, and looked behind him at the ark from which he would walk away in, into a new world, I believe that somewhere deep inside of him, the trained eyes of his faith said, that's this ark. 
but that's this ark, but there's, uh, there's going to be another ark to come. There's going to come some vessel of safety that will not only carry eight souls and me and my family, but all of those who will enter in by faith. This is this ark, but there's another ark yet to come. Those of the sons of the, and daughters of Adam who will escape the judgment and wrath of God will do so, he says, in an ark of safety. In the conversation between Isaiah and the prophet and King Ahaz, Ahaz said, I want a sign, I want a sign. And the prophet raised his hand and said, you want a sign? God will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and will bring forth a child and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor. All the nations and all the tribes of the earth will find salvation in him and the government will rest upon his soldiers. You want a sign? A son is born. A child is given. And I believe in that moment upon hearing that, that King probably looked at Isaiah and said, what in the world are you talking about? I think that's what he said. But you know know what else I believe? I think the prophet said to himself, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know exactly what I'm talking about. I know that this is a prophecy that, that may be for you in a sense. I, I know that this is a prophecy for this generation in a sense. But I believe that Isaiah the prophet said there is a son that is coming. There is a child that is coming. There is a virgin that, it, that will conceive. And his trained eye of faith saw beyond the years, saw beyond the centuries, and beheld a sign that was not for Ahaz, but for me and for you in this hour. At Jesus' birth, I mean, how many, how many people passed Mary and, and Joseph as they made their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem? The, the roads were just choked with people. Caesar had commanded that everybody had to return to, to the village of their ancestry so that they might be taxed and that a census might be formulated. And the entire Roman Empire was in movement as a result of that, that decree And Joseph was just another guy and Mary was just another pregnant girl trying to make their way to the town of Bethlehem so that the baby could be born. And I wonder how many people passed him in the streets, rubbed shoulders with him. And nobody, nobody said, this is the baby. This is that virgin. This is the sign. This is the child. Nobody. They just look like three more of the masses of humanity floating along the tides of history. Nobody saw the diamond among the junk. The innkeeper. He saw nothing but an inconvenience and cast them aside. Herod the king saw nothing but a threat to his own throne and in in ruthless murderous rage commanded his soldiers to kill every baby boy two years of age and younger in and around Bethlehem. At the height of that slaughter, I, I wonder if, if, if even one single soldier with his blood-stained arms and his sword in his hand, clutching a little baby by his feet, ready to cut its head off, I wonder if one single soldier ever once said, I may be the hands of Satan at this moment. I may actually be under the control of demonic power trying to snuff the life out of the seed of the woman that was promised in the Garden of Eden. I may be the instrument of satanic power trying to frustrate the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah that would come. I wonder if if one of those demonized soldiers as they committed genocide there said to himself, I wonder if one of these babies just might be the son of God. In Egypt, the Egyptians, they didn't see Mary and Joseph and this little baby who lived there for some years and say, this is the son of God. This is the holy family. They saw nothing more than 
three more Jewish refugees that were a burden on their economy. They saw nothing more than a carpenter who took the job of a, uh, that an Egyptian might have had in his hometown of Nazareth. When Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah and said, This day is this prophecy fulfilled before you, not one, not one saw the diamond. They only saw humanity that looked just like them. I mean, what did they say? They said, Isn't this Jesus? Don't we know where he grew up? Aren't his brothers right here in the synagogue with us? These are his sisters. That's his mother Mary. Isn't he Joseph's son? He looks just like us. His eyes look like ours. His face looks just like ours. His skin is the same of ours as ours. And we're all junk, so he's junk. There was not a single trained eye in the synagogue that did say, no, listen, there's a diamond here. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate judged by what he could not see. He said to the mob screaming for Jesus' crucifixion, he said, I find no fault in him. I wonder if his own personal history would have changed if he had said, I see a diamond in him. Instead, they saw a worthless piece of junk to be nailed to a cross by a raging mob and a blind civil servant. However, there were others who had trained eyes to see hope and faith. The wise men beheld a star and saw a king. The shepherds beheld a baby and saw a savior. Elizabeth beheld her cousin and saw the mother, the, the mother of her Lord. John the Baptist beheld a man like any other and saw the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew, I love the story of Matthew. He was just sitting at his tax collector's desk, counting his coins of the coins of his traffic, of his business. And, and, and you need to understand, we, we'll go into it another time, but as a tax collector, they weren't hated just because they cheated people. They were hated because they were traitors to their own nation. Think about it. I mean, how does, a, how does an occupying army support itself? Through taxes. So a Jewish person collecting taxes, you're collecting money that, that sustains the, the, the force that is, that is subjugating you. They were traitors to their own nation. And so Matthew, here he is, he's collecting his money and, and suddenly a man that looked like any other man stopped at his desk and looked him in his eyes and he said, follow me. And Matthew laid down his life and his business and his past and his future and his hopes and his dreams and his materialism and he walked off with Jesus. It was one of the most amazing moments of personal comfort, confrontation in the three-year ministry of our Lord. Those two words, follow me. Why? Because Matthew looked into the eyes of Jesus, a man that looked like any other man, and yet he saw beyond the wall of flesh and beheld the diamond of eternity. Zacchaeus, miserable, wretched, cold-hearted, cold-blooded, cold-eyed, traitorous little businessman, up a tree and out on a limb. Jesus looked up at him into, into the, in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up in a tree? Come down. This day I'm going to have lunch with you at your house. What, what an amazing confrontation. You know, he didn't look up at Zacchaeus and say, you, you dirty, rotten, stinking little sinner, I, I hope the limb breaks and you break your neck. It, it was just a precious little moment. Humanity speaking to humanity. I think Jesus uh, called Zacchaeus with a twinkle in his eye and a chuckle in his voice, partially knowing because, that the, all those religious people around him were going to get all up in arms because he called this, uh, this, this 
traitorous uh, sinner, this tax cheat, the, the, uh, uh, and said, I want to have lunch with you. And I think Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus uh, in that tree and he said, he said, you know, you look like all of humanity to me. Come down. I, I want to have to, uh, lunch at your house with you. And, and listen, that's the entire gospel in a sentence. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That is God's statement to humanity. He says, I'm here. I look just like you. Here I am. I'm God among you and I'm coming to your house to eat. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus became real flesh and blood and he became one of us. You know, food didn't just somehow penetrate through the veil of his flesh and go into another dimension. Jesus ate just like everybody else did. You know, we, we have to get this. He got hungry and he ate. When he walked in the sun, he perspired. And if he's like me, if I perspire enough, he probably had a little bit of a smell about him once in a while. He was, he, when he hit his thumb in his dad's carpenter shop with a hammer, it hurt. He knew pain. He knew discouragement. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's not just, he's not God with some transcendent floating ethereal spirit moving through humanity and condescension. He is God with us as us. He looked like us. He talked like us. He sounded like us. See, here's the thing. If if there was some mysterious quality to his voice, then he wouldn't really be God with us. He wouldn't be one of us. You know, you, you see all these movies about Jesus and, and, uh, and in these movies, he's just, first of all, he's uh, almost always looks European, which he wasn't European. You know, he was Middle Eastern. He was Jewish. And, and, he, and he's, on these movies, he has these slate blue eyes and this chestnut hair. And he's just, you know, got this perfect chiseled physique. And he has this radiant aura around his head. And he floats into the room and says to Matthew, follow me, you know. Well, that's just, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's, that's like a Far Eastern guru. Then Jesus wasn't a guru. He was God in the form of humanity. But we need to know he was real humanity. Very God, yes, He turned the water into wine. He walked on the water. He made the blind to see, caused the deaf to hear. But at the same time, he was very man. He was a real man. So so that when people looked at him on the street, as he's walking down the street, people didn't look at him and say, oh, man of God, that's that's the son of God right there. I can tell by looking at it. He's glowing. Look at that halo around his head. That must be the son of God. No, if he had been easily identifiable as the son of God, if you could have looked at him, and just by looking at him, you would know, oh man, that's, that's the Son of God. If that, if that were true, then would Pilate have ever nailed him to a cross? Would the Pharisees have screamed, crucify him? Would the innkeeper have rejected him? Would the people of Nazareth have, have tried to stone him? Would, Judas, would Judas, Judas have betrayed him if he could look at him? No, but the fact is he looked just like them. And, 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 and what we do as humans, we say he looks just like me. So that, 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 must, be, that must not be God because he looks like me. He's not going to look like me if, he, if he's God. But the fact is he didn't look different. But that's important. That's important. The fact is he, he didn't look different. And, and, and that is God's glorious pronouncement that he is for humanity. See, Emmanuel means God with us. As Zacchaeus looked down 
from that tree his eyes saw beyond that human confrontation and said, there's something divine here. There's something miraculous here. Something eternal is happening here. There was this spark and it was, it was that arc across the circuit from Jesus to Nazareth because Jesus, Jesus looked down from that tree and he saw somebody that looked just like, just looked like another guy walking by and that guy stopped and looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And Zacchaeus climbs down from that tree and, and he says, I've sinned. I've been living in sin. I'm a cheat. I'm a liar. I'm a fraud. Anybody that I've cheated, if you'll come to me, I'll pay back four times what I cheated you out of. I'm going to sell half of the rest of that and give it to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. And the rest of the people standing around, they're looking at this saying, what happened? What? What? What did, what did, did you hear what he said to the guy in the tree? Why did the guy say all that stuff? What did he say? And they said, yeah, I heard him. He said, let's go have lunch. I mean, it's, just, it's an astonishing conversion experience. You understand this, don't you? That Jesus didn't say anything else to him. He just said, I want you to come. I'm going to have lunch with you. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus, in spur of the moment, in response said, I'm a sinner. It's just not your normal response to an invitation to have lunch. You know, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to make a list of all the businessmen around me, Marion, and I'm going to call him and say, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. Just see how it goes for me. Hey, I don't think it'll work for me, but it worked for Jesus. I mean, you see the miracle of this moment. The miracle of Zacchaeus' conversion. The miracle of it is that Jesus wasn't glowing. He looked just like everybody else, and yet Zacchaeus saw something in him and was changed in spite of that fact. I want us to get this. He, was, he looked just like any other man standing under a tree, uh, uh, and he spoke to a guy about an invitation to have lunch with him, and then eternity happened. But the thing is, that's the point. That's the whole point of this. Jesus, you know, he could have floated down from heaven on like, you know, a little little pink cloud or he could have stepped out of a sh- seashell somewhere he he could have popped full grown from the forehead of some statue but that's the stuff of myth and legend uh, uh, but but the fact is he was born like any other baby was born and the fact that he was born that way is miraculous i'll be honest with you i love christmas i love christmas music but there's one christmas hymn that i'd I, don't, I mean, I like it. I, lo- I think it's very beautiful, but there's at least one part of it I don't care for. But that's, that's the song, Away in a Manger. And some of you are like, don't touch Away in a Manger. That's my favorite. No, but here's the part. Because the song says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. Jesus was a real baby. How many of you are parents and you've, you've had babies in your home? Let me ask you a question. Did crying they make? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when my girls were, were little, plenty of crying they made. They, they made, made lots of crying. Uh, and Jesus was a real baby. I'm here to tell you, crying he made. Crying he made. And not only that, there are other things he made that other babies make. Um, and if you're, are we communicating here? You know, and some of you are just really uncomfortable with that because you're, you're like, I don't know about, about this thought of, uh, you know, son of God needing somebody to change his diapers. But listen, that's exactly the point. He would not be one of us if he didn't come as a vulnerable, vulnerable baby the way that we came into this world. 
When he was hungry, he cried. When he was wet, he cried. And, and, and the whole, that's it. That's the whole point. God didn't stand aside from humanity hiding behind the veil of his holiness and say, ooh, what nasty creatures. You know, look at him. You know, look at them dirty sinners. Rotten, stinky, nasty people. Ooh, I made them, but I don't remember why. No, we're talking about the God who spoke light into distance, who looks at us, who murder our brothers like Cain, who lie to God like Adam, who disobey God like Eve, who refuse to go into safety like Noah's neighbors, who refuse to listen to prophecy like Ahaz the king. And then God says, I will be as one of them. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Our problem is our eyes still won't see it. We we still won't see it. You know, I heard an evangelist tell of a time when he was on an airplane on his way to Los Angeles and he sat down next to a fellow and he struck up a conversation with him. And uh, this man that he sat next to was an engineer, very intelligent, very articulate man. And he, he had an atheistic bent or at least an agnostic bent. And, and the evangelist sat there next to this man and began sharing about the things of the Lord. And, and the man looked at him and he said, he said, if, if God is real, let him speak to me. And the evangelist said, I'm here. What do you want? He said, there, there are 7 billion people on earth and I sat down on this plane next to you and I opened my Bible and began to tell you about God. He said, why do you think that out of 7 billion people you deserve an angel or, or some kind of miracle? He said, no, my friend, you got a preacher and this is it. There are people listening to my voice right now. There are people who, who came to church because grandma made you come or or you, you, you come to church because to get your wife off your back for one more year. And you're here and you're saying to yourself, if God wants me, let him give me a sign. If God wants me, then I want a miracle to prove himself. But the miracle is this. God was willing to look just like you. God became real flesh. God spent 30 years growing up and three years in ministry. God died a stinking, nasty, lonely, miserable death on a, a, hanging naked on a cross. He was accused of being the one thing that he could never have been, God forsaken. He, he died bleeding to death. And, and the Bible says that men jut out their, their jaws and mocked him. And they, and they shot out their lower lip, which were ancient symbols for, for indicating that somebody was crazy. And they said, look at him. He claimed to be the son of God, but he can't even... And save, him, save himself because their eyes were blind. They were too blind to see the diamond among the junk. He was crucified on the place called Golgotha, place of the skull. And he was considered the junk of humanity, cast aside by the Roman Empire. But you know what? There's always been one or two that opened their eyes. A Roman soldier, wine-soaked, perverted, demonized, took a spear and he said, let's see how he bleeds. And he stepped up under the cross, thrust that spear under the fifth rib, and the blood spattered down on his hands. And his eyes were open, and he said, this is not junk. Surely this was the Son of God. And his voice shot around, shot around the world. Every now and again, somebody opens their eyes. This is not just a Christmas story. 
This is not an angel on top of a tree. This is not Rudolph with, with, the, with, with the red nose. This is the Son of God, Emmanuel. It reaches to the pitiful, wretched, lonely girl who cannot face life with the baby to whom she has just given birth. So she wraps him in a towel and lays him in a ditch with a bus ticket taped to his chest. True story from Florida. On the one hand, she was unable to face the thought of life, but on the other hand, horrified at the thought of his death. Abandoning him to die, but deep within her soul, praying that he'll live. God says to that girl in that moment, this baby is not just junk. This baby is not junk. He is so precious that I, your creator, was willing to become just like him. And even as you place him in a ditch and hope that the highway patrol or some hunter or some bystander will find him, knowing that the possibility exists that he'll be torn to shreds by the dogs, in the same way, he says, I placed my firstborn into the arms of of people that I knew would tear him limb from limb. This statement, God with us, speaks just as well to the materialistic career girl who crucifies her unborn, unborn baby in the womb because she can't stand the thought of this inconvenient profit, uh, pregnancy at this difficult time in her life. And God says to that girl, don't worry about the embarrassment. Don't worry about the inconvenience or the financial distress or the emotional difficulty that you may face. See the diamond. See the diamond. This is my greatest creation, humanity. God says to that girl, I never died for rocks and trees and sparrows. You know, what what an odd and strange paradox that the same people that have bumper stickers that say save the whales are crying out for abortion on demand. They miss the diamond. They miss the diamond altogether. They have their eyes so full of junk that they miss the diamond. God said, this is my peak creation. He said, this was created in my image. You can't just shoot a saline solution through the wall of your uterus and blind a baby and pluck him out piece by piece. This is a diamond. You know, I've watched, as, uh, as you have, different families that adopt children. And I've seen it go well. The mystery of love and bonding. And I've also seen it go poorly. And I've always wondered what the major variable is. You know what I think it is? And, and this is just a theory from observing families over the years who have adopted children and have really found the blessing of God in it. And so this is just my, my opinion. This is not fact. This is not scripture. But you know what I think the difference is? I think the major variable is in the eyes of the mother. I, I think that there are some mothers who, who, that adopt out of the highest and the best attitudes and the, and the highest desires in the world, but then they, they, they spend the rest of their lives trying to learn to love this child like their own as if they, they, he was really the fruit of their body. And that's good, but, but it's not the best. Because I think there are other mothers who from the moment somebody hands them that baby, knowing that they didn't go through the pains of childbirth, knowing that the baby was not conceived in them, knowing that this is the, the fruit of somebody else's body, knowing all of that intellectually, when that doctor or that adoption agency puts that baby in their arms and says, here's your child, some adoptive mothers at that moment honestly see the baby as theirs. From that moment they see it. They don't see the past. They don't see the natural mother. They don't see the junk. They just see the baby. They see the diamond, perfect, hers. And I remember when my daughters were born, and especially, you know, my mind goes back to when my oldest daughter, Erin, was born. 
Uh, it was one of the most exciting moments in my entire life, uh, at least up to that point. Uh, Julie and I, when Aaron was born, we had been married for 12 years, and we had begun to think, we had actually come to the conclusion, had come to peace with them, and we, we believed that children just were not in God's plan for us. Um, we, had, we had been married for 12 years and not ha- able to have children, and and then without going into the whole story, he, he suddenly surprised us at just the right time in life. And I remember the day she was born and holding her for the very first time. As I'm holding her, tears are streaming down my face and I, I just managed to choke the words out. I said, I, I can't believe you're here. The, the thing is, though, as much as I loved her, I, I, the poor little thing had spent a a lot of time in the birth canal. It's a whole story behind that. And, and so her head wasn't shaped right. Her face was red. She was crying and her eyes seemed like they were swollen almost shut. And if you've ever been a newborn, you know she had goo all over her. And then Julie looked at her and said, isn't she beautiful? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I said, yeah, that's just what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We, we both thought she was beautiful because, because we, we couldn't see any of that other junk. We, we, we saw the diamond. We saw the miracle of a baby that we didn't think we were ever going to have. We saw the diamond. How marvelous then that God loves us. You know, one of the greatest riches of the Bible is the doctrine of adoption. Through Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that God adopts humanity. God looks at me with all of my sin and all of my ugliness and all of my filth and all of my wretchedness and all of my past and all the things that I've done and all the wicked stuff that I said, I've said and all the sins that I've committed and all the ugliness of my past. God sees all of that. But then the moment I look up to Him and say, Abba, Father, adopt me in the name of Jesus, He doesn't see that junk in me anymore. He doesn't see me the way that you see me. He doesn't see the past that, I, that I've lived through he sees none of that he only sees the adoptive love bond between him and me and he says mine mine my diamond my son my child glory to god that's a miracle that's a miracle what a wonderful thing christmas is it's a wonderful thing it's not just presents under the tree or family dinners or christmas stories told around the coffee table Christmas is God descending to take the form of humanity so that he could become my adoptive father. That I might know him in all of his fullness. You know, if Jesus had only become an angel, then when I died, I might somehow through some work of God be able to have the hope of becoming an angel. However, that's not what happens. You know, you see all these little cartoons and uh, people dying and they suddenly, you know, they come up and they got wings and harps and halos and and they become angels, but that's not what the Bible says at all. You know, pe- people who don't read the Bible honestly think that, that when you die, you become an angel. But, but, uh, but when you die, you, you don't become an angel. An angel is a completely different type of being. It's a created being. That's not what happens. When you die, what happens is you become one of two things. You either become dead or you become alive. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. It's not appointed unto man once to die and become an angel. Furthermore, it's not appointed unto man once to die and be recycled, you know, for those who believe in reincarnation. But this is it. 
This is it. This is our one shot. This is our one life. And when this life is over, you either burst full grown into the fullness of life or, or you find death eternally. This thing that we call physical death, it's really just the open door into an eternal reality. Death opens the door to either the reality of ongoing death or the reality of ongoing life and the fullness thereof. The key to it all is Emmanuel because the Son of God became like us and he died for us so that through him we can know his life. He died so that we might live. He rose so that we might rise. He, he is with the Father so that we might be with the Father. He ascended so that, so that we might ascend. This is what he said, John chapter 14. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He says, now I'm going to go away. And if I go away, he says, won't I come again? He says, if I made you, if I created you, if I came to live among you, if I, if I came to be as you, to be one of you, and then as a, if I adopted you, then am I going to forget you and go away forever? He says, no, I'll come back. I'll come back. And if I come back, won't I take you back to be with me? And if I take you where I am, by the time that you get there, he says, I will have prepared a place for you so that you may be with me and with the adoptive father forever and ever. Jesus had those enlightened eyes full of hope and faith. Others saw drunks and prostitutes and harlots. Jesus saw diamonds. Others look at some of us and they see drug addicts, the down and out, the rich and lost, the poor and doomed. But Jesus looks at us and he sees diamonds. Others look at mankind and see nothing but brokenness, sin, darkness, and evil. But Jesus looks at mankind and he sees diamonds ready to be adopted. Better yet, the best part of it all, Jesus looks at you and he sees a diamond ready to be adopted. He's just waiting for you to say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, only you can see inside the human heart. Only you know what's going on inside of each one of us today. And Lord, I pray that in this place, Lord, if, uh, if some of us have forgotten the fact that you became one of us so that you could save us. Lord, I pray that we would, we would just turn to you, God. If there's anybody that has never surrendered their life to you, Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name today would be the day that they would turn to you and say, Abba, Father, please adopt me. I want to be your child. Knowing that we can't earn it, knowing that it's not about being good enough, but it's about putting our trust in you, believing what you did, and finding the diamond among the junk. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around, and uh, even those that are watching on the live stream, I wonder how many of you here would say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me because I've, maybe I've gotten caught up with 
so many other things. And I want to come back to the reality that Jesus is God with us. And what, all that that means. And that you want to just turn to him and say, adopt me. I want to be your child. I want to stop trying to earn my way to you, God. I want to just want to receive your salvation by faith because of your grace, because you're so good. If that's anybody in this place, I don't know anybody's heart. I mean, you could have been in church for 30 years and never, never actually surrendered your life to Jesus, so I don't know. But I want to give you that opportunity today. If you'd say, Pastor Dave, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Is there anybody? Just slip your hand up right where you are so I can pray with you. Maybe you're online. Maybe you're watching on the live stream. And you say, Pastor Dave, pray. You can pray right now. All you have to do is just simply say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Come into my life and, and adopt me as your child. I want to live for you. Father, you see every heart. Maybe those that are at home that are praying that very prayer right now. And Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name that you would, uh, that Lord God, that you would, you would just uh, fill that room with your presence. That there would be an assurance that they would know that they're not worthless. That they would know that all the things they've done in the past have not disqualified them. In the same way, Lord, all the good things have not qualified them. But it's only about turning to you and being adopted by you, Father. And I pray, God, that in this moment that they would surrender their life to you and that, Lord, that this would become the best Christmas they've ever had because they've made you the center of their lives. And Lord, I pray for everybody else that you would help us, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas this week. I pray, God, that that we would make sure we keep you at the center of all. Lord, there's nothing wrong with gathering around the tree. There's nothing wrong with, with exchanging gifts. There's nothing wrong with getting together with family. All those things are wonderful, Lord God, but help us to remember what it's really all about and to keep that at the very center of our celebration. And we give you thanks and praise. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.